Good morning. Surprise. I know um, Pastor Mike doesn't usually say who's going to be speaking, and it's probably on purpose because those of you that might know that I was going to be speaking might say, I'll just stay at home this week. So anyway, um, I'm here today. I'm going to fill in. My name is David Snyder. If you don't know me, I am a deacon here at uh, Liberty Church. And so I'm pleased and intimidated to give you the word here this morning. Um, We're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. It'll be our text today. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your word this morning. Lord, you know me. I'm such a fallible man. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will empower the words that come from my mouth this morning and that your word would go forth. Not because of me. People will hear today, I stumble on words. I get nervous. But Lord, may your words go forth. Use me as a humble service servant today, Lord, to preach your word. Be with us, Lord. Open our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I have pleasant, pleasant memories of being in a, a young person in a church, in a youth group. Uh, the people there were friendly they were less judgmental than, than I had in school. I felt accepted, even as awkward as I was. Some people might say I still am. <laughs> I established friendships with kids from my youth group that would go on for 10 to 15 years. We went to church together. We went to summer camp together. We had retreats together. We sat in church together. Over these years, we professed faith in one way or another together. These years will forever be entrenched in my memories. By the time we turned 18, however, the dynamic started to change with this little group. Some of us went off to college. Other of us, we started careers. One or two of them went into the military And even a few got married early. Overnight, this group of friends became a memory. 
We all went our ways. And I got involved with a new group of friends. My friends and my pursuits then turned worldly. You wouldn't find me in church for at least ten years. My story wasn't vastly different from most of these friends who I grew up in church with. In the past 34 years, rarely has my path crossed any of these friends. Their stories, however, have come back one by one, much to the sadness of my heart. Very few of that friend group seem to be serving Jesus with, in any significant way. Some of them have turned their backs on all things Christian. Not just my peers, but my friends. Some of them have turned their backs. Our youth group pastor, he's one of the people, he was a hero of mine. He would stick up for me when others wouldn't. I would confide in him details in my life that I couldn't even confide with my parents, which is a sermon for another day. His story was interesting. After I started college, I had heard that he won the Monopoly game, the the McDonald's Monopoly game, $1 million. So people do do that. They, They win. I know this person did. He decided to leave the ministry, his pastoral duties, and become a lawyer. Just recently, I came across him on Facebook. I was browsing through his post just interested on how his life had transpired. I came across post after post on how he's renounced the classical Christian faith. How could it be a man who was a hero in my teens, who during that time would continue to point me to the gospel in Jesus Christ, would urge me and inspire me to be in the word of God, This same man had willingly come to my public high school to help me with a philosophy project in philosophy class. Defending the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God. He now has essentially turned his back on all things Christian. How do these kind of things happen? I'm sure you've all seen this as I've seen it. Somebody who makes a bold stand for Christ, a great profession of faith, and today they're nowhere to be found. I'm sure most of you would have a story of people like this, at least one story, if not a whole bunch of stories. People that start out so excited and finish up so poorly. Some of the most outspoken and dynamic Christians that we know from our past are among those today. Spiritually speaking, neutralized at best, even hostile at worst. How does this happen? Could it happen here at Liberty? Eh, It has happened. And you... Know the really scary part? None of us are exempt from it happening to us. You see here, this is the very thing that's going on here with these Hebrew Christians. 
They are a group of second-generation believers who had heard the Gospel directly from those who had been eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. They were about as close to the original source that anyone could ever get to. But yet, as a consequence to the mounting pressures around them, alternatives to Orthodox Christianity were starting to look more and more appealing. Not that they were on the verge of renouncing Jesus Christ altogether, but they were beginning to think to themselves, you know, our preoccupation with Jesus may have grown a little bit out of balance. Maybe we've just become a little excessive. After all, there are other things in this life, other pursuits, other concerns, other people. Maybe if we just back off just this bit, the tension will slacken. But the author of this letter, Hebrews, this author will have nothing to do with that. This letter comes to us anonymously. There are many who have ideas who wrote this letter I have my own, but we really just don't know. But what is really clear to anyone who reads this letter with a discerning eye is that the love this author has for the people who receive this letter is enormous. He knows that the greater persecution for these believers is just around the corner. So at the very end of this book, he says, pray. Pray that God would make it possible for me to be restored to you. In other words, if if we're going to go through this persecution, I want to be right there with you. He loves these believers. But there's also a second way that he displays his love for them. Woven into the fabric of this letter, there are strategically placed warnings. These are pastoral appeals that grow out of theology that he sets forth. The author, whoever it might be, loves these people. He is a pastoral theologian. This man dearly loves the people that God has given to him. But now he's filled with great fear in the face of the possible compromise with the gospel. So, what's the approach from this pastor? He begins with teaching theology, the richest sort of theology. When you finish reading chapter 1, and if you haven't, you should, when you finish reading it, you see the superiority of Jesus. It's ringing in your ears. If it's not ringing, then you don't have ears to hear. Jesus is greater than everything. Jesus is greater than everyone. He's greater than the angels. But my friends, theology is not an end to itself. It is a means to an end. So after setting forth this wonderful theology about Jesus in chapter 1, the greatness of Jesus, the author turns the corner and says this, If Jesus is better, if Jesus is greater than everything else and everyone else, then for you to be complacent or for you to play fast and loose with your commitment to Him is to jeopardize your own soul. It's to jeopardize your own spiritual well-being. This is an issue of the greatest possible seriousness for you and I. 
It is the burden of these four verses that I read at the start of Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to start with two statements today. Actually, I'll start with one. I'll get to the second. That will summarize the emphasis of this first pastoral warning. Listen closely. The process of drifting away from the gospel is imperceptible but real. The process of drifting away from the gospel is imperceptible but real. Hebrews 2 verse 1. You're there, right? We didn't move yet. Therefore... On the basis of all that I told you about everything in chapter 1, this author says, the greatness of Jesus and the superiority of Jesus, we must give the more earnest heed. Some translations say we must pay careful attention to what we have heard. Why? Lest we drift. So we don't drift away. So this, this here, this word, lest we drift, this phrase, is, is really interesting. It's an interesting metaphor. The author places the word here so very, very, very in- intentionally. His intent is not eloquence or beauty in writing here. The word drift is very well suited for the situation at hand. The word drift is a nautical term. The word was used to speak of a ship whose anchor had broken loose from the ocean floor and now the ship is dangerously drifting away from safe harbor. The problem is that drifting is so gradual that it's not even recognized while it's happening. It's imperceptible. It's so slight This drifting is so subtle, so gradual, that the occurrence of it is not plain to the senses. This, my friends, is what makes this drifting so insidious. I was reading a story, Admiral William Perry, some of you might be familiar. He was an English explorer who led an expedition to the Arctic Ocean. From what I gather, he was looking to map the unexplored areas of the very northern hemisphere. Perry's crew started out a difficult, bone-chilling, treacherous journey north. As all good ship captains do, he used the stars to get his bearing to find out how far north he actually went. As they walked hour after hour in this bone-chilling cold, Finally, they were exhausted. They stopped again. They attempted to take bearing from the stars. But when they did the second time, Perry's group discovered that they were even further south than when they had begun. Suddenly, he he realized the problem. They had been walking on an ice flow, and this flow was moving south faster than they were advancing north. Its drift was imperceptible. Not plain to the senses, but it was real. The same phenomena, this drifting, is what concerns this author of Hebrews. When our anchor is dislodged from the bedrock of Jesus Christ, we are exceedingly susceptible to unholy undertoes that seek to pull us away from Him. Undertoes that are subtle 
so slight, so gradual. They're beyond our recognition until a time that our spiritual condition is in a perilous state. I've grown up in a Christian home. I attended church for most of my life. I've worshipped with and taught many believers over the years. In my years in Christ's church, there are patterns repeated over and over again. But in all those years, I have never known one person, a professing Christian, who woke up one day and suddenly out of nowhere said, I will forsake Jesus Christ. This day I will turn my back on the cross and the Gospel. It doesn't happen that way. The anchor dislodges and a subtle, imperceptible drift begins. Then one one day in the future after this drift has begun, you find yourself sitting in the back of a police car. You look down at your hand and you find your hand wrapped around an empty bottle of whiskey. Or on the nightstand, there's an empty syringe. Or you wake up the next morning next to someone who isn't your spouse. Then suddenly it dawns on you, I've drifted far from the safe harbor of Jesus Christ. I'm sure some of you here are thinking, come on. We know that true Christians cannot be lost eternally. I would agree that's a theological statement that I would lend my assent to. But the problem is, it only summarizes half the issue. When we make a half-truth out of a whole truth, what do we wind up with? An untruth, right? It is true that no authentic Christian could ever sin themselves into eternal lostness. Praise be to God that He not only saves His children, but He keeps His children. Amen? But my friends, what's equally true is that no authentic Christian could could or would ever sin themselves into eternal lostness. Jesus says in Matthew 10, you guys, I'm sure you know it, He who stands firm until the end will be saved. The one who continues to the end will be saved. So on one side of the coin, God keeps His people and He keeps them until the end. But there's another side of the coin, that same coin, God's people with God's grace persevere till the end. These are two sides of the same coin. We need both. If we don't have both sides of that coin, it will jeopardize your soul. In order to understand your soul's condition, you need to understand both sides. The writer of this letter is encouraging his readers at this very point. That there is a necessary perseverance. Of course, you and I know that no true Christian can be lost eternally. But that's not the author's concern here at this point. It's to address that other side of the coin. The side that's very real to us. The issue of perseverance. Of without, no professing Christian can see heaven. You see here, the author is writing to people, professing Christians, that are going through so much tribulation. And guess what? It's going to get worse. 
These Hebrews were toying with the idea of letting go of Jesus ever so slightly. Not renouncing Him, not outright rejecting Him, but just loosening their grip on Him just a bit. After all, doing so just a tad would make the circumstances of their life just a little bit easier to cope with. In the eyes of this author, however, this pastor, this loosening, this drift is grave. For him, drifting is no small concern. He understands as a pastor that wholesale apostasy apostasy begins with this imperceptible drift. There's a man named Kent Hughes. He's a pastor and author of many books. Most notable is The Disciplines of a Godly Man. He says this, The experience of the church 2,000 years ago, he's speaking of this same passage about these Hebrews, intersects our life in this way. Drifting is the besetting sin of our day. As as the metaphor suggests, it's, it's not so much intentional, it's from unconcern. Christians neglect their anchor Christ and they begin to drift away quickly. There's no friction, no dramatic sense of departure, but when the winds of trouble come, the things of Christ are left far behind and even out of sight. John in Revelation, he uses different language, but refers to the same thing when he reports what Jesus said to the church of Ephesus, a church, by the way, that looks and talks like a healthy church. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You've not abandoned Christ, but he's no longer the apple of your eye. He's not your top affection. In most practical terms, how do you know if this imperceptible drift, real drift, is taking place in your life? How can you tell this morning if if your grip on the Savior has slackened just that little bit? I have a couple of suggestions for you. You can know when this imperceptible drift away from Jesus is already in motion when speaking to Him ceases to be a vital part of your life. When the quest to be like Him no longer dominates your thinking. When gathering together to worship Him has lost its delight. When you can mouth songs in corporate worship without engaging the heart. When pointed spiritual conversations are an embarrassment to you. When the acquisition of material possessions become the driving force in your life. When the pursuit of recreation or leisure takes on a predominant role in your life. 
when the slightest excuse keeps you from your spiritual responsibilities. You can know when this imperceptible drift away from Jesus Christ is already in motion, when you can read morally degrading literature or watch morally degrading movies or media without an uproar in your conscience. When you can engage in compromising business practices with no apparent ill effects. When you can cheat on a test or your taxes and revel in your ability to not get caught. You can know when this imperceptible drift away from Jesus Christ is already in motion, when you are dulled by the preaching of the Gospel, when you lack utmost desire for the salvation of believers around you. When as a person in this church, as a person here in this church, you can sit here Sunday after Sunday under the preaching of the Gospel and say to yourself, someday in the future I'll make things right with God. The drift has already begun. Are any of these things true this morning? Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. The process of drifting away from the Gospel is imperceptible but real. Point two, the consequence of ignoring the gospel is severe but true. The consequence of ignoring the gospel is severe but true. The author here in Hebrews now moves ahead to explain the seriousness of this issue to help us see how utterly significant the issue is. He does this by reasoning just like he did before in in chapter 1. Reasoning from the lesser to the greater. Look at verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels... This is our connection to the previous chapter. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast... Some of your translations might say binding or reliable... Every transgression or violation and disobedience received a just reward or punishment. How shall we escape if we neglect or ignore so great a salvation? If you read this passage carefully, you should should hear it should start to ring a legal emphasis in these words. The author here is heaping on top of one another, one judicial expression on top of another. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast or binding, this word carries with it the concept of legally binding. It is legally authoritative. And every transgression or violation and disobedience, this means to break the law received a just reward, or as I said before, just punishment. All these are legal terms. They have a legal emphasis. What in the world is he talking about here? He's talking about God's law. The law of God that that, uh, God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. 
It was there that God gave that law to his covenant people, the people of Israel. So if you want to understand this a little bit, if you want to take all the Old Testament law, you can summarize all the Old Testament law like this. Obey and live. Disobey and die. See the word right here, transgression or violation? For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast in every transgression and disobedience, violation. This speaks of a defiant overstepping. These violations are not a mistake. It's not like, oh, I didn't know. This is, I know what is right, but I will fully do what is wrong. See this word disobedience here? Every transgression and disobedience. This speaks of a refusal to listen, a refusal to hear, a refusal to heed. This is a defiant covering over the ears, an unwillingness to hear and obey. Why am I spending so much time on these two words? So that your understanding, you won't leave here today without this understanding, that these words do not reflect an accident. This is not the action that takes place unintentionally. Not something that occurs even unknowingly. These two words refer to a deliberate rejection of God's revealed will. Here's the key question. What did God prescribe for the punishment for clear, outright, blatant defiance of His law? The punishment was death. I can hear it ringing in your heads right now. But what about all those sacrifices? The whole priestly system, every morning, every evening, they would offer a sacrifice. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice for the people. Did you realize that all the Old Testament sacrifices were offered for sins committed inadvertently, accidentally, in ignorance? Hebrews 9.7. We don't have time to turn. I'll just read. Hebrews 9.7 says, But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year. Second part, holy of holies, without, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. These offerings were never made for defiant sin. Only sin that was committed in ignorance, accidentally, unknowingly. That might be surprising to some of you. Numbers 15, we are going to turn there. So if you can turn there for me. The better part of this chapter takes up this issue, but we're only going to look at a slice due to time. Numbers 15, and we're going to start in verse 27. And if a person sins unintentionally, then he shall bring a female goat in its first year as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally. When he sins unintentionally before the Lord to make an atonement for him, and it shall be given, forgiven him. Verse 29, 
you shall have one law for him who sins unintentionally and for, who, and for him who is a native born amongst the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwells amongst them. Now we get to verse 30. Hear the contrast. But for the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord and he shall be cut off from among his people. You know what that phrase cut off means? Cut off from among his people? Rarely, very rarely, occasionally, it means excommunicated. But more often than not, almost always, it means he needs to be killed. Verse 31. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. So here's the plan. Inadvertent sin, unintentional sin, sin performed in ignorance, go offer a sacrifice. Defiant sin, willful sin, your life is to be taken away. Illustration, verse 32, still there, Numbers 15. Now the children of Israel were in the wilderness. They found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Huh. Looks like he's picking up sticks for the family fire. Something like that. Not that he's opened up business on the Sabbath and figured he can make some extra money while other, people's aren't, other people aren't working. It's not that carnal. It looks like he's just picking up sticks. Verse 33, And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, The man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So the Lord commanded Moses, and all the congregation brought him outside the camp, and, he was, and stoned him with stones, and he died. Inadvertent sin, accidental sin, sin performed in ignorance, Offer a sacrifice. Sin committed in defiance to God's law, no sacrifice could be offered. You lose your life. Now let's get back to Hebrews 2. So if you can go back there with me. Was this excessive? Was this somehow unrighteous on the part of Almighty God, who is the moral governor of the universe? No. The writer says here, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. Punishment. It was right. Also, before we press into the application, notice who the mediators of this law are. For, the, for if the word spoken through angels, angels, 
We've heard a little bit about these angels already in this book. In chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, it's angels, angels, and angels all over the place. But angels in inferior, I'm losing my words, that are inferior to Jesus Christ. See, I told you guys I can mess up my words once in a while. So here he says, if if the word or message spoken by angels was steadfast or binding, did you know angels were involved in giving the law at Mount Sinai? Did you know when God showed up at that place, when God came down on that mountain, He wasn't alone, but surrounding Him were myriads and myriads of angels. Deuteronomy 33. Moreover, do you know when God spoke His law, He actually spoke it through the voice of an angel to Moses. Did you know that? Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is preaching, he says, Moses was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our fathers he received the living words to pass on to us. It was through an angel that the steadfast binding law came. Don't, don't, don't let me lose you. Here's the point. If the word spoken through mere angels proved binding, and rejecting that word through angels carried with it devastating consequences, then what are we to think about the word that has come to us from God's own Son? Infinitely greater than the angels. This Son of God who has not brought us law, but brought us the gospel of grace. He has brought us salvation. Listen. To sin against the law is one thing. To sin against love is another thing altogether. Ignoring that word from the greater revealer is catastrophic. So as we look at verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What does it mean when this author of Hebrews says escape? If you take that word escape and you trace it through the New Testament, do you know what you'll find? Every time, almost every time it's used, in its context, it's, it's in judgment of God. Or judgment of God, it's God's judgment. And guess what? You'll never escape. If the anchor dislodges and imperceptible drift continues unchecked, then a person will bring down on him or himself or herself a far greater judgment than, than mere physical death. It's just as simple. If a person ignores God's own son, he can expect a judgment corresponding to that sin that in the eyes of God is far more despicable than any other sin that could ever be committed. The greater vision, the greater the vision of Jesus, the more severe and eternal punishment if he remains ignored. ignored. You do know, right, that there's varying degrees of judgment in eternity, Right? Judgment is determined by the amount of light a person has and rejects. Turn with me quickly, Matthew 11.
I'm going to start in verse 21. Jesus here is preaching through the towns of Galilee, and they persisted in their unbelief. He was preaching and teaching and even performing miracles. He says here, Woe to you, courtesan. Woe to you, Bethesda. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. You've seen more, you've heard more, you've seen God come in the flesh, and you persist in rejecting God. On the day of judgment, it's going to be much worse for you. Verse 23, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to to Hades. Down to Hades means a deeper death. The idea here is there's a hotter hell. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now we all know it was taking place in Sodom. But yet do you recognize in the eyes of the living God the sin of rejecting Jesus is infinitely greater? Hebrews 10 says, How much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? The peril of ignoring the gospel. It's the peril of ignoring God's greatest word. If you hear it all and see it all, And you can turn and walk away. Frankly, it's no longer possible for you to be saved. There is nothing that can save you. Young people out there, out in social media, as I was preparing the sermon a few weeks ago, I've been thinking about you. I know most of you have heard the gospel over and over and over again. You've heard it for years. You know who Jesus Christ is. You understand the gospel. If your parents were to wake you up at night in the dead of a sleep, you you can explain to them what the message of the gospel is. There is a danger of not responding to Jesus Christ. The message of the Bible is so very clear. It would be better for you on the day of judgment if you had never heard the name of Jesus than to hear it and walk away. But you have heard that name. You've heard it a thousand times, I would gather. God has been pleased to bring you the gospel over and over and over again. And this morning I'm absolutely convinced that the reason He has done so is because He loves you. And He wants to save you. Have you trusted this morning? Have you trusted in Jesus? Do you believe? Not just understand. 
Do you believe that God crucified His only Son and raised Him from the dead? If you believe that this morning, confess your sins and make Jesus the object of your faith and affection. If you believe in Him, put your trust in Him and you will be saved. Do that today. Don't begin to drift. God has been pleased to give you this. Adults, have you ignored this great salvation? I've heard the excuses. I've never actively opposed Jesus Christ. I've heard it said, professing Christians, well, that's, that's nice for some people, It provides moral boundaries for their children. It provides them strength in a time of crisis. Isn't that neat? How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Here's the kicker. You won't. There is no escape from eternal condemnation. You will not elude your guilt. You will not be able to bribe the judge. You won't be able to break those prison doors down. No longer will there be a sacrifice of sin available to you. No longer will the door of mercy be left open. You will be irrecoverably lost. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The consequences of ignoring the gospel is severe but sure. The fact is no person will perish more justly than the person who rejects God's offer of salvation in Jesus Christ because you have heard all that is left to hear. You have no excuse. None. Quickly as I wrap up, where did all this good news come from that this author's talking about here in Hebrews? Hebrews 2, verse 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began, listen to this, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? This salvation was announced by Jesus Christ himself. So the origin of this message is unquestionably pure. It originated from Jesus himself, not from angels. The message of salvation originated with the one who is infallible and full of wisdom. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news today. Every one of us breaks God's perfect law. The law-breaking, or what they call sin... If you're not familiar with all the words, law-breaking is sin. It's what makes us guilty before a holy, holy, holy God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The punishment for our law-breaking, our sin, is death. This affects us first with our normal death, our physical death, but the Bible also talks about a second death. That is eternity spent in a place of punishment called hell. 
For the wages of sin is death. I love when he has this here, though. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus Jesus Christ Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree of Calvary. For this reason, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Because of what Jesus has done, not your own works. There's nothing you can do. Because of what He's done, you can be saved. How great a salvation. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10.13 This gospel of Jesus Christ is the best news anyone can hear if he has ears to hear. Call on the Lord Jesus Christ today and be saved. I'll say it again. No man will perish more justly than a man who has rejected the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. There is no king but Christ. The answer to our drifting, the answer to our sin problem, is peace with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh. He had lived the perfect life that you and I could not. He died for sinners, you and I. And He rose again on the third day and defeated death. The only hope you and I have, the only hope anyone in this world has, is through faith in Jesus Christ. The call today of the Gospel is to repent and believe this good news. Come today to Christ. Church, have you ever wondered why so few Christians finish well? Why so few Christians finish the race with great strength and great vigor? Why so many Christians are dominated by lukewarmness and compromise? Why does it seem that so few even finish the race? Oh, they were never saved to begin with. Perhaps that's true from the perspective of eternity. But from our perspective in time, it's much simpler than this. The anchor gave way. The imperceptible drift away from Jesus Christ began. Sometime in the future, if not arrested, Jesus will be ignored altogether. Let me read to you in closing here a prayer from a man who's been a Christian for many, many years. He wrote this prayer at the end of his life. Listen to it as you hear the proclivity to his drifting. I fear the dark specter may come too soon. Or do I mean too late? That I should finish, or I should end before I finish, or finish but not well. That I should stain your honor, shame your name, grieve your loving heart. Few, they tell me, finish well. Lord, let me get home before dark. Are you drifting this morning?
Only you can answer that question. Has the process of drifting begun? Are the signs there? I beg you this morning to not be indifferent to those signs. There is nothing more serious. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. If that drift has begun, my friends, you need to give yourself to the gospel today more seriously than you ever have before. You need to be sure this very moment that Jesus will occupy the place of greatest allegiance, greatest attention, greatest affection. Sink the anchor deep into Jesus today. He's an infinitely great Savior. Stop the drift. Worship team, you want to come up? Let's uh, bow our heads here. I know I, I sin with time. And I know I might have gone long. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, if we have heard your voice this morning through my broken words, then it stands to reason that we can stop the drift by your grace. Lord, for some, that drift might not even be noticeable by others or anyone else here. But for others, Lord, the drift may have become severe. Lord, there are mo those among us who have heard the gospel and ignored it time and time again. Lord, I pray that your spirit would not allow them to rest until they bow their knees to you. Perhaps this day, Lord, someone will meet you for the first time and have a moment of salvation, and we praise you for that, Lord. For those of us who belong to you, perhaps we've been flirting with compromise, Lord. What a frightful, frightful thing it would be to wake up in eternity and discover that we have deluded ourselves and we were never yours to begin with. I beg you, Lord, to not let anyone rest here today until they deal with this most important issue. Thank you, Lord, for coming today and speaking to us. You are a great God, and we thank you for your grace. In your son's matchless name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.